top of the evening or nighttime at least in my neck of the woods one and all how's it going i'm joseph cotto and it is a pleasure to be here for another q a episode it will not be the last uh it, it, there are a few things to get into uh it is august and in august as i mentioned on twitter now it calls itself x whatever uh august is a slow month uh, along with September, uh, the two slowest months, but August is the slower of the two. Why that is exactly, I don't know, but I just know that's the case. So less stuff, less than uh, less stuff left than last time, uh, but still some very good stuff to get into all the same. I'm able to address most of it. Most of it was reasonable and responsible. And uh, yeah, I will be delving into it immediately after this. What is this? Well, I have to say that I have reached a milestone on Twitter, uh, and it is a milestone that could not have been reached without all of my followers. I am now at 34,100 and some odd followers, and that is more than what I had after the, well, immediately following the January, post-January 6th purge when a lot of people lost their accounts on Twitter. Uh, people who remember, I'm sure most people do. Uh, maybe everyone does. It'd be kind of weird if one didn't, unless you didn't know about the platform very much before uh, you know the last several months, basically. But uh, there was a terrible purge on Twitter of accounts, various accounts. Uh, it was ridiculously overbroad. Twitter just dropped the ax on many, many different users. And that sent my uh, follower count down to 16,000 and change. It was at 33,000 and change. Uh, and now under the new management, I've grown to over 34,000 and I sure as hell intend to keep growing quite a bit. This is uh, <laughs> this is nowhere near the halfway point for what I have in mind. But uh, it is good to see that uh, people are interested in what I have to say. That's an honor in and of itself. So many different types of people veterans, business owners, some rather notable names uh, that they find my perspective worthwhile enough to give my account a follow really is uh, something and it's something for which I'm very grateful. So I just wanted to address all of that. I want to thank all of my followers for being here. Uh, it is really appreciated, each and every single one of you. Uh, I can't uh, emphasize that enough. Uh, it, it's awesome. It is. I mean, obviously, I would not be doing anything on Twitter without the followers. It just would, there would be no point. Uh, and for an account such as mine, which is unverified, uh, <laughs> I do manage to do reasonably well enough when it comes to tweet views and certainly video views uh the the show now typically gets over ten thousand viewers per episode obviously not all at one time this is over the span of weeks but uh it's it's really great so i have uh positive things to say about how things are going which is you know <laughs> it, there's so much negative stuff out there it's nice to have something positive to talk about for a change and i just had to address that before getting into the questions for which i have some answers so that is that thank you once again everyone for following me it really it, you have no it really makes to say it makes a difference is putting it mildly it truly does thanks again uh now getting to the questions the first one is from gabriel knight he asked is this accurate or bs and uh i, I will be doing something a bit more comprehensive than i have uh in the past i will actually bring up an article that's relative to the question that was asked of me 
uh, and then I'll be sharing my views. Uh, but in this case, the article was brought to me. So uh, I'm going to be uh, addressing that. Now, the question of is this accurate or BS pertains to two tweets, uh, and I will be reading uh, both of them, and then I'll share my views. Uh, the first tweet is from Watcher. Guru, it says Gen Z and millennials need between 3 million and 5 million in retirement savings to live comfortably due to inflation, according to reports. Uh, then moving along to Insider, a headline over half of Gen Z and millennials could face a retirement crisis as inflation rises and home ownership falls, says a Boston University economist. Well, uh, you know, I obviously don't give anyone financial advice, I'll just say that right off the bat, but. This is intriguing uh, for a host of reasons, because uh, obviously a lot of people who are younger are not even giving a thought to retirement and living paycheck to paycheck. And they have debt, student loan debt, if they bought a house, a mortgage, uh, in many cases, a car payment, a hefty car payment. Who the hell knows what else they're into? Uh, so it's it's definitely an issue among Zoomers and millennials. Uh, and. Uh, you know, uh, rising inflation and the declining uh, rate of home ownership definitely factor into a sense of hopelessness that a lot of younger people feel, and that influences how they act in a host of ways. It's too uh, consequential to even begin getting into here, but suffice it to say, it is definitely uh, meaningful. Uh, as for the between three and five million dollars in retirement savings to live comfortably due to inflation, I think it's a little ridiculous to put a number on it like that because you have no idea what inflation is going to be like down the road. Uh, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's it, the idea that most Zoomers and millennials would be able to save up three to five million dollars for retirement is pretty crazy. Uh, that's never been anything remotely attainable for the overwhelming majority of people. Uh, I don't think it will be attainable for most Zoomers or millennials. Not giving anyone advice on how to save for retirement, but what I will say is that the three to five million number, I don't place a lot of stock in. It obviously depends upon what sort of uh, retirement one wants. Is it something luxurious? Is it something minimalist? Is it something out of the country, which a lot of people are now choosing for totally understandable reasons? Uh, you know, all these things come into play, and putting the three to five million number on it, I think, is crazy. I have seen a lot of people talk about how retirement, if it's done in a minimalist fashion, is not something that is so anywhere near so exorbitantly expensive. Uh, and I am inclined to agree with that, obviously. Uh, it, it just depends on the people. But th th there's no way that most Zoomers and millennials are going to have between three and five million in retirement savings. That's just, you know, it's not going to happen. Period. Uh, end of story. Uh, so I think people saying that this needs to be the case uh, are rather off base. It's just nuts to put a, a dollar sign on this uh, at any rate, because you have no idea what the power of the dollar will be down the road. And you don't know, obviously, what inflation is going to have in store. So that is that. A very good question. But no, I, I don't take three to five million number uh, seriously on general principle. Uh, so, you know, that's uh, my perspective there. Moving on to the next thing. This is from uh, Wall Street Republican. Uh, with the current realignment going on, do you think it's possible that Republicans will begin to advocate for raising taxes on the wealthy? This is a good question. There is an article in Newsweek published on the 14th of June of this year titled, Democrats being party of the rich could cost them 2024 election. 
Data shows wealthier Americans are now solidly behind the Democratic Party, a generational realignment that has altered power dynamics in D.C. The shift has arguably led Democrats to embrace more moderate economic policies, turning off progressive grassroots voters they need to win. To gain back working class votes, some believe major political parties need to make income inequality a key facet of their 2024 platforms. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting to see what will come of this. Uh, obviously, you know, now it's my perspective. Uh, I, I I think that uh, the GOP, you know, there's no question, it still has a lot of uh, I wouldn't say just donors, but members who are uh, they they expect uh, that the party will be pro-business. And it has to be particularly pro-small business because small business owners are the backbone of the GOP. Now, some small business owners make uh, you know, a seven-figure income, but you can't really compare that to someone who's a billionaire or is worth several hundred million dollars and is a Democratic activist, you know, funding uh, radical candidates for district attorney in various locales, that whole thing. So when people talk about the wealthy, you're talking about a really large pool of people, even though relative to the population, that's uh, it's not a great number, not a large number. That's what I mean. But uh, among themselves, there's a lot of diversity. You know, people who would be considered wealthy, people who uh, I, I guess you would say have the net worth of uh, a seven-figure net worth, uh, a seven-figure income, uh, and end up. Uh, so it's it's you know. That definitely is a large pool, even though it doesn't seem as such from afar. Uh, I do think that the Democrats have a real issue in their party with the younger activist base, which is definitely not wealthy. It's heavily in debt. It's very insecure in its employment. Uh, it does not tend to make good life choices. So these people are definitely going to want to see the wealthy Democrats host. Uh, in the GOP, there's more respect for capitalism uh, and the overall you know, business cycle. Uh, so I don't think the GOP is going to go anti-business. What it probably will do is start opposing certain uh, loopholes. Uh, I, I do think that is the likelihood here. Uh, and it would be interesting to see exactly what that entails, opposing certain corporate tax breaks, different kinds of corporate welfare. Uh, I, I think that uh, I think that it's uh, it's interesting to see what will come of that. There is a sector of the article in Newsweek titled Sounding the Alarm. Uh, let's see here. Uh, let me see. Where do I want to skip down to? Uh, in a February address, Biden called on members of the Democratic Party to renew their commitment to the nation's working class, saying uh, the shift was because the working class believed, and I'll just interject here, the shift refers to uh, the working class becoming disenfranchised with or disenchanted with the Democratic Party and feeling disenfranchised within it. Um, and what he said, this is a quote from him, uh, what the working class believed. A lot of them came to believe we stopped thinking about the working class the way we used to. Uh, now, from my view, obviously that's true because there has been a realignment which is continually uh, transpiring. Uh, getting back to the article, uh, Republican thought leaders, meanwhile, have seized on the opportunity. 
Recent columns published by conservative outlets like the National Review have called for an end to government subsidies for corporations long considered engines for economic development. Conservative pollsters like Rasmussen have also found an increasing affinity for ending corporate welfare among Republican voters across the country. Getting back to my perspective, yeah, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I think it's going to be the Republican Party becoming more hostile towards big business. You saw that in Florida with Santa's taking on Disney, which I supported, but then it became explicitly political. And I did support that. Uh, I, I Well, you can say it was political from the beginning because Disney tried to interject itself in the state public policymaking process by throwing its weight, which is to say money around. And the Republicans, to their credit, did not want that to happen. But then Disney ratcheted things up to uh, a certain level, as did DeSantis, and it became basically the, the dispute between them, a proxy fight over trans-related uh, issues. Uh, not just trans-related issues, even though th th that was the biggest thing, the whole thing of teaching uh, sexual education to young uh, children. The, 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 so the fight between DeSantis and Disney became a proxy over that. Uh, and Disney did try to interject itself in the state's political process to oppose a bill which uh, made it so uh, certain issues about sexuality could not be taught uh, to children uh, who are in elementary school and since been expanded beyond that. But uh, the, uh, the <laughs> how do I put this? The Republicans were right to try to, not to try, just, just, but to successfully, I didn't think they had it in them, but to successfully push back on Disney trying to flex its muscles in this way. That's where the attempt came in, Disney trying to flex its muscles. It didn't work out. But then DeSantis capitalized on this politically, and Disney uh, did much the same to shore up its base among people in California who are uh, decidedly in favor of teaching two-year-olds, four-year-olds, six-year-olds, about all sorts of things I won't mention here. Uh, and it became this culture war clash rather than something of uh, Republicans taking on big business. Because in Florida, Disney used to basically have its own county. That's the way it worked. It had its own what was called improvement district. Uh, but it functioned as its own county, its own county within two separate counties, uh, Orange and Osceola. Uh, for those who don't know, Orange is where Orlando is. Osceola is where a lot of overwhelmingly Hispanic suburbs of Orlando are. So it's 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 interesting. You, what you saw in Florida, I think, is definitely a harbinger of things to come. Uh, and the GOP becoming much uh, less receptive towards corporate welfare, uh, tax breaks, loopholes, this, that, the other thing is also a harbinger. I think the Democrats will be more in favor of something like uh, a corporatist arrangement for Disney where they govern themselves or these uh, giveaways to politically connected companies because it fits their model of consolidating political control. Uh, so very interesting. I think that, so this is the way I think things are going to, uh, to proceed. Uh, very good question from Wall Street Republican. Uh, from Psychic Storyteller, that's an interesting name. Is the value of silver being artificially suppressed? Obviously, I have no idea uh, whether or not there is some conspiracy afoot to artificially suppress the value of silver. But this is something interesting, an article from uh, the Oxford Gold Group. Uh, it's titled, Is Silver Still Undervalued Today? So on and so forth. And I'm skipping down to part of the article which is it titled, Is Silver Undervalued? The short answer is yes. Right now, a rare combination of market factors has created what appears to be an uncharacteristic valley in silver pricing. 
uh, skipping down even more, there's a large discrepancy between physical supply and overall demand in the silver market right now. This is unlikely to change in the near future because supply can only grow so fast, whereas demand seems nearly insatiable. This discrepancy is causing a stall in the price of silver, but market conditions suggest that the price of silver will rise quickly when the bottleneck in the market resolves itself. Now, this is getting to my point of view. Uh, obviously, nobody could say what's going to happen with the silver market. Uh, <laughs> you know, it really went to the moon in the early 2010s and then it crashed. Uh, and who the hell knows what's going to happen next? Do I think that silver is undervalued relative to its utility? Yes, I do. Uh, I don't know exactly how that undervaluation is happening, but I do believe it's there. Uh, I, I have, you know, I don't give investment advice. So I'm not going to say whether or not silver is a good investment. But what I will say is that uh, silver is something that has immense, immense, uh, <laughs> it's immensely usable in so many different ways. And its valuation to me is, is strange that it's so low. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it is what it is. But I do think that silver has a bright future. I just can't say how bright that might be. Uh, so anyway, uh, that that's that's the the situation there from my point of view. An interesting question. Uh, the next one is from. I just had it right here. Oh, Andrew. <laughs> uh, if when the world. If slash when the world dumps the U.S. dollar, what are the odds the federal government switches to a new currency, making all the overseas dollars worthless? Well, you know, obviously, I, I, there's no way I could put a number on that uh, on the odds. But uh, what I do find uh, interesting, obviously, is what is transpiring because the dollar is. Uh, it, it, it is definitely in a state of flux. This is an article from ABC News. Emerging economies are pushing to end the dollar's dominance. But what's the alternative? Across the developing world, many countries are fed up with America's dominance of the global financial system and especially the power of the dollar. Business has vanished at Kingsley Odafe's clothing shop in Nigeria's capital, forcing him to lay off three employees. One culprit for his trouble stands out. The U.S. dollar strength against the Nigerian currency, the Naira, has pushed the price of garments and other foreign goods beyond the reach of local consumers. A bag of imported clothes costs three times what it did two years ago. The price these days is running around 350000 Naira or $450. I don't know if I mentioned it. Uh, I'm very bad about remembering this. This article was published on the 19th of August of this year, in case anyone is wondering. Uh, if I already said that, I apologize for sounding redundant, but, uh, you know, <laughs> better to be safe than sorry. Getting back to the article, skipping down a bit. But griping about King Dollar is easier than actually deposing the de facto world currency. Skipping down even more, despite repeated talk of the BRICS countries rolling out their own currency, no concrete proposals have emerged in the run-up to the summit starting Tuesday. I'm not going to get into the summit. Uh, that's me interjecting, of course. Getting back to the article, emerging economies have, however, discussed expanding trade in their own currencies to reduce their reliance on the buck. At a meeting of BRICS foreign ministers in June, South Africa's Naladai Pandor said the bloc's new development bank will seek alternatives, quote, to the current internationally traded currencies, and quote, a euphemism for the dollar. 
Pandor was sitting alongside Russia's Sergei Lavrov and China's Mao Zedong, representatives of two countries that are especially eager to weaken America's international financial clout. So this is now getting back to me. Of course, this is uh, interesting. I think that uh, I mean, there's no question that there is a great deal of uh, of desire for an alternative to the dollar. And this would pertain actually to the world dumping the dollar. Uh, and I'm going to get to uh, someone who was quoted in the article. Uh, his name is Daniel Bradlow. He is a senior research fellow at the University of Pretoria. Uh, he's also a, a barrister, and he his field is international finance. Uh, I would imagine most people know that the University of Pretoria is in South Africa. He said, quote, at the end of the day, if you want to keep your reserves safe, you've got to put it in the dollar. You're going to need to borrow in dollars. Everybody can see all the problems with doing this, but if there was an alternative, people would use it. End quote. This is uh, now the article. Well, I mean, the, the quote was from the article, but you know what I mean. As it stands, 96% of trade in the Americas from 1999 to 2019 was invoiced in dollars, 74% of trade in Asia, and 79% everywhere else inside of Europe, which has the euro, according to calculations by U.S. Federal Reserve researchers. Very interesting. Now getting back to my point of view, uh, very interesting indeed. So dethroning the dollar is not uh, an interesting thing. Uh, I mean, it is an interesting thing, but it's not an easy thing. Although it's a very interesting prospect. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'll read someone else who was quoted in the uh, ABC article. Mahela Papa, who is a senior fellow at the Fletcher School of Global Affairs at Tufts University, she said, quote, none of the alternatives to the dollar managed to get to the dominance level. So the idea that now overnight you'll have a new BRICS currency that would cause, uh, that's in parentheses, cause a major upheaval, it takes time, it takes trust, dot, dot, dot. I see this path as very long, end quote. Uh, it's interesting, very interesting. Uh, I, I keep using that word because this whole thing is interesting. It's very, very much thought-provoking. I think that the, the, the dollar will come to its end as the global reserve currency, but it's going to take quite a while for that to happen. It could take, I mean, it depends on the, uh, on the financial health of the U.S. I mean, the credit score of the country is just downgraded, and I'll be getting to that in a little bit. So that certainly does nudge along uh, the decline of the dollar on the, on the world stage. But a lot of other countries are going through a lot of problems themselves, uh, worse than the U.S. is when it comes to financial stability. So it's not necessarily like America's in a rut, but everywhere else is doing great. It's 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 a difficult situation. It is for trying to piece this together, but right now we're in the midst of a massive shift of economic power towards the developing world, represented by BRICS. BRICS, uh, since the Biden administration began, has been growing by leaps and bounds. There's no reason to believe that's going to stop at all, let alone anytime soon. So I would say that in time, the BRICS countries will probably get their act together. How much time that will take, I have no idea. I, I would imagine within two decades, they might have some sort of serious alternative to the dollar. Uh, just how serious, though, you know, that's anyone's guess. I do think the dollar will continue to grow weaker, but obviously it's not just going to you know, fade away overnight. Uh, so uh, the, the part of the question which pertains to you know, the federal government switching to a new currency, making all overseas dollars worthless, 
I don't think Uncle Sam would have the power to do that by the time there is a serious alternative to uh, the dollar, which would dethrone the dollar, uh, in, you know, which would be the world dumping it. That's what this would entail. Uh, I really don't see Uncle Sam having the power to make overseas dollars worthless if the situation progresses to the stage, like I said, at which the dollar is... Is is no longer the world's reserve currency. I mean, Uncle Sam would basically be limited to power inside of his borders, and a lot of people here would be uh, trying to take advantage of the paradigm shift in uh, what constitutes a, a reserve currency across the world. So I, I really don't think that he would have the power to do that in this case. We'll see what happens. Uh, I do think the dollar will be dethroned, but it's going to take some time. It's not you know next week or uh, even next year. Uh, perhaps not even next decade. That's my point of view there. From Matthew, what do you make of the threat to downgrade J.P. Morgan? That's a very good question. Uh, that That is. And there is an article about it published in Reuters. Uh, I, that was, it was uh, released on the 15th of August of uh, this year. Fitch warns it may be forced to downgrade multiple banks, including J.P. Morgan. CNBC. They're, they're, they were the ones who reported on this. Now it's me talking, obviously, and Roy just reported on what they reported on, just in case anyone was wondering. Getting back to the article, an analyst at Fitch Ratings warned that U.S. banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase, could be downgraded if the agency further cuts its assessment of the operating environment for the industry, according to a report from CNBC on Tuesday. In June, Fitch lowered the score of the U.S. banking industry's operating environment to AA- from AA, citing pressure on the country's credit rating, gaps in regulatory framework, and uncertainty about the future trajectory of high interest, of, excuse me, of interest rate hikes. Another one-notch downgrade to A+ from AA- would force Fitch to reevaluate ratings on each of the more than 70 U.S. banks it covers, analyst Chris Wolf told CNBC. Very interesting. Uh, very interesting indeed. I think that, uh, no, this is me, needless to say, uh, I, I think that there isn't much doubt that, uh, <laughs> that America is in some degree of problem crisis with its banking industry. There have been certain banks that have been failing, uh, and a lot of others are on the edge. It's not just in America. Credit Suisse is having some real problems. Uh, I think that J.P. Morgan may well get uh, taken down a notch. I, I, I don't think that's, you know, a sort of doomsday scenario. I don't think that's off the wall. Uh, I think it can happen, and it would obviously have severely negative reverberations for uh, not just the banking industry, but the American economy. The day that happened, it would be, <laughs> people would definitely take note of it, I'll put it that way. Uh, so I, I really do think that this the situation with J.P. Morgan is one to watch. I can't say for certain this will take place, needless to mention, but it is disconcerting. And uh, I, I think that, you know, mighty as J.P. Morgan is, as we saw in 2008, uh, well, some banks were too big to fail, others were not. I think J.P. Morgan would squarely be within the realm of too big to fail. The government never let it fail. But I do think that it would, it, it can certainly see, uh, and perhaps 
it's likely that it will cease just perhaps and not saying for sure not saying it's very likely but perhaps it will see it's uh heretofore sterling reputation uh admonished to some degree uh which would not uh not bode well for the rest of the economy particularly the banking sector on which everything else is in some way shape or form reliant we'll see what happens from citizen one how damaging is a weakening Russian ruble to Russian economy? They have a trade surplus, smaller than pre-war, but a surplus, and their food and fuel comes from within Russia. Does a weakening ruble then actually help them more rubles for domestic use? This is a great question uh, from Citizen One, and there is an article in the Associated Press uh, about the subject matter. It was published on the 15th of August of this year, obviously, titled Russia's Ruble Has Tumbled. What does it mean for the wartime economy? Uh, let's see. Where do I want to start off? There's uh, we'll, we'll go down, actually. We'll go way down. Uh, is Russia having an economic crisis? No, says Chris Weaver, CEO of Macro Advisory Partners. The lower ruble, he's, this is a quote for him, the lower ruble is partly a reflection of the effect of sanctions, but it doesn't indicate an underlying economic crisis, end quote. The falling ruble actually has helped the government with its budget. It means more rubles for every dollar of earnings from oil and other products Russia sells. That bolsters spending on the military and social programs aimed at blunting the impact of sanctions on the Russian people. Apologies for that. Uh, <clears throat> now, pop up on the AP's website. Unbelievable. Well, I guess it's pretty believable. <laughs> the AP has to figure out how to make money somehow. Uh, let's see. Getting back to where I was. Uh, I'll just start reading this, uh, this uh, paragraph over again. Uh, the falling ruble actually has helped the government with its budget. It means more rubles for every dollar of earnings from oil and other products Russia sells. That bolsters spending on the military and on social programs aimed at blunting the impact of the sanctions on the Russian people. Quote, they've tried to compensate for the drop in the dollar value of oil receipts with the weaker ruble so that, therefore, the deficit in terms of spending could be contained and more manageable, end quote, Weaver said. Amid sanctions and restrictions on moving money out of the country, the ruble exchange rate is largely in the hands of the central bank, Weaver said. It can tell major exporters when to exchange their dollar earnings into Russian currency. Quote, the weakness was planned, but it's overdone and they want to pull it back, end quote, Weaver said. Janice Kluge, a Russian economy expert at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, said the ruble decline is, quote, not very welcome, and quote, to the Kremlin. While not a full-blown crisis, quote, this is the closest we came to real economic problems since the start of the war, end quote, Kluge said. The chaos at the start of sanctions was far worse, but since then the ruble decline, quote, is the first time that something seems to be not so much under control, end quote, he said. Well, I'll read this last bit as well. Any boost to the budget from a lower ruble, he said, is offset by higher spending on government wages and pensions, which are indexed to the inflation caused by the lower ruble. Quote, whatever gives the impression of a weak or unstable economy is not welcomed by the Russian government, end quote, he said. Quote, Russia, the exchange rate is 
In Russia, the exchange rate is always seen as the most important indicator of the health of the economy, end quote. This is interesting. Obviously, people have different perspectives on just what the, uh, this is me talking now, uh, on just what the weakening of the ruble amounts to for Russia. Uh, there are some people who will say that it's not what the Kremlin wants. Others would say, yes, this is basically Kremlin engineered. It goes to show how the Western media really does not understand terribly well a lot of what's going on in Russia, including some experts or people who say they're experts. Uh, and it's, it's kind of annoying because all these people have their theories about, you know, Russia's this, Russia's that. I'm sure we've all read the articles. Russia's going to fall. This is the end of Putin. It's the end of this. It's the end of that. Uh, it's the end of the world, blah, 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 blah. But you know, the world keeps on spinning and Russia <laughs> is part of the world. Uh, so I think that Russia is not in any sort of serious trouble. That, that's my perspective. I think that Russia is not going to be taken down by the uh, collapse of the ruble. Uh, as was mentioned by Citizen One, I'll read this part of what he wrote. They have a trade surplus smaller than a pre-war but a surplus and their few food and fuel comes from within Russia. He is absolutely, he or she is absolutely right. Uh, and that is, you know, basically Russia, Russia is self-sustaining in many ways. And in ways that it's not self-sustaining, it has access to a lot of Asian and certain European uh, markets. And it knows how to use that access to its own benefit quite brilliantly. So Russia is in a uniquely strong situation to weather economic crises. I don't think that the weakening ruble is going to, 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 to cause any sort of serious economic uh, upheaval, which would then cause political unrest. Uh, obviously, that's what a lot of people in the West want. But uh, I don't see it happening. I really don't. Uh, from Ryan Knight. All right, here you go. Where do you see the Florida GOP a year from now? The reason for asking this question is twofold. Influence of DeSantis and cost of living due to insurance situation for many homeowners. Very good question, Ryan. Let's see here. The article that I'm going to get to, uh, it was published at ABC News. Uh, and it was published on the 31st of July of this year. How Florida's insurance crisis is haunting Ron DeSantis's campaign. The average price of homeowners' insurance has more than doubled. Donald Trump has a list of familiar taunts for his leading challenger, Ron DeSantis, mocking the Florida governor's tone in his last name. But recently, Trump has begun slamming DeSantis on a more kitchen table issue. Uh, this is quoting Trump from uh, Truth Social. The desanctimonious super PAC always backed down should focus more on Florida property and auto insurance, which has zoomed to highest in the nation's status and highest by far. Come home, Ron, where you belong. Get those insurance rates way down because what's happening in Florida shouldn't happen anywhere. End quote. Now, getting back to the article, obviously, the, 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 the Truth Social post was quoted in the article, but skipping down, a recent study put Florida at the top of the list for the most expensive home insurance in the country. Insurance comparison shopping website Insurify found that Florida residents, on average, pay an annual premium of $7,788. The next state, Oklahoma, pays an average premium of $6,853. 
Nationwide, the average cost of homeowner's insurance is expected to increase in 2023 from $1,636 to $1,784, Insurify found. With hurricane season looming this summer, DeSantis is now being pressed to answer for the issue. From Trump, the racist front runner who has begun to regularly repeat the insult during his rallies on the campaign trail, and from other politicians in Florida. Well, that's as far as I will uh, read of the article. Uh, I think that there really is you know, a, a, a serious question as to how this will impact DeSantis. Uh, right now, from what I've seen, it's not crippling his political career. If anything, what's the biggest problem for him is that he's out of the state so much campaigning for a doomed presidential bid that everybody knows is doomed, uh, but he keeps on going with it, and he actually changed the law to make it hard to, <laughs> to get, uh, to make it impossible to get uh, information released to the public about certain aspects of his uh, traveling, his schedule. Uh, really odd, because obviously Florida is such sweeping sunshine laws, uh, which you know, as, they get, as I think everybody realized, uh, these laws make it easy to access government documents. So it's, it's, it's yeah, what, what's hampering Ron is his presidential campaign. I think not so much the situation with uh, insurance rates, although it's a terrible situation because this is something felt across the state. And uh, the Florida Republican Party does control the state uh, <laughs> under lock and key at this point. Uh, I don't think the Florida GOP will be harmed by this, though. Uh, I, I don't see them necessarily taking a lot of the blame. People want the race to go down, but they don't necessarily blame it on state leaders, from what I can tell. Uh, although they might in time if the state does not take some action to uh, allay this, uh, but the state uh, can't do price controls, so it's 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 really difficult. I mean, they literally can't do price controls. Uh, it's 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 interesting. It really is. There is the state-run insurance company, and that is, from what I understand, planning to raise rates on its uh, on its clients. So. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a crazy situation. If anything, if there is some sort of political problem, uh, I mean that'd be held against the Florida Republican Party. Obviously, the insurance crisis is a political problem. But if the voters decide to hold against Florida GOP, it probably has something to do with citizens. That's a state-run insurance company. Uh, I, I think that DeSantis did not cause the situation. I say that as someone who's now a fan of his, uh, as anybody who follows my Twitter account knows. Uh, as far as the cost of living uh, problem, which comes from the insurance uh, situation, among other things, is concerned, I really can't blame that on him or the state GOP. Uh, other places that are like Florida that have, that have experienced a tremendous amount of growth uh, where people often struggle to find housing that's available, let alone affordable, uh, where there are often storms. Uh, this has been a problem. Uh, this, it's been a tremendous problem to get uh, suitable insurance, or in some cases, any insurance at all. Uh, it's 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 an issue. Uh, politically, I don't know much of what can be done about it in the short term. I, I mean, citizens can't support the whole state, that's for sure. 
Uh, California is also facing a terrible property insurance crisis, although that is something different than Florida. I mean, it does have to do with natural disasters, but people are not flocking to California and there's not, you know, uh, it, it, it's not it's not the same situation. Although in California, housing supply is very limited because of stringent state environmental laws, which make it difficult to do uh, large scale developments nowadays, particularly of single family homes, but also attached housing. Uh, it's one of the reasons why apartments are so common in California today and condominiums. But even they're expensive. A lot of foreign speculators, particularly from Asia, buy up a lot of the uh, the available stuff in California. Price in California is out of their market. Uh, and it's, you know, that, that that's something else causing a big problem in, in their uh, in their homeowners insurance industry. Uh, although in their case, and I say this is someone who's very environmentally friendly, but they were so stringent with these laws about when and where houses can be built and how many can be built and under what circumstances it jacked the price of them up so much that uh, <laughs> homeowners insurance obviously became profoundly, uh, if not prohibitively expensive, and this has only grown worse with time. So different situation than in Florida, even though Florida has very strict environmental laws of its own, uh, they are not. They, they are not intended really to uh, put a stranglehold on housing developers, that's for sure. Although the laws are there, uh, it, it, but they're not intended to to uh, uh, to make it almost impossible to build new large-scale uh, housing developments. So it, it's something else because Florida and California, I think everybody realizes, have very strict environmental laws. But Florida's laws are not tailored toward uh, crippling developers as California's are. So you have the property homeowners insurance crisis in, in each state happening for a different reason. Florida and Texas though, are very similar. Uh, Texas has, you know, not much in the way of environmental. I mean, they, they do have environmental protections in Texas, don't get me wrong, but it's not like California or Florida. So even there, though, there's a bit of variation between, you know, Texas and Florida. But certainly Texas and Florida, the, the, the homeowners insurance crises, uh, are more analogous than, say, Florida and California. Uh, but I don't think the state GOP is going to, uh, is going to face a tremendous degree of backlash for this, uh, for the reasons I mentioned, also because the state Democrats have not brought up any serious alternative, because there really isn't any serious alternative. This is just something of, of the market functioning uh, in accordance with different factors that I've been going over. Uh, it's a terrible thing what's happening with insurance here, uh, an absolutely terrible thing. Uh, and uh, DeSantis has not given the amount of attention he should to it. If anybody takes blame for it, I don't think it'd be the state GOP on the whole, it'd be Ron DeSantis. Uh, he, he's certainly been correctly perceived as being out of state, doing his own thing, not really caring, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it's, it's uh, not good for him. But I don't think that bleeds over to the rest of the state GOP. Um, but once again, I don't think, as much as I'm not a fan of Ron's, uh, you can't lay this at his feet, nor can you lay it at the feet of the state Republican Party. It's 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 a problem that's due to market factors, environmental factors, uh, for storms, of course. Uh, it's it's very difficult. A lot of moving pieces to this. Uh, so I don't think it's going. I don't think the Florida GOP a year from now is going to be in a bad position at all. I, I really don't. It keeps uh, it keeps escalating its voter registration lead statewide, uh, which is. Not terribly surprising by now, but still remarkable because it's, you know, this has this incredible winning streak when it comes to getting new voters on the rolls. Traditionally, some of the Democrats have been much better at in one uh, locale or another. So that is definitely interesting, but I, I don't think it's going to have any big 
impact on the state GOP. It might on DeSantis, though, but I think his political career is basically over after this presidential run. So that is that. Uh, from Reniek, what do you think about the debt level as a percentage of the true U.S. balance sheet? Very good question. And uh, for this, I am going to the U.S. House of Representatives Budget Committee, uh, an article published on the 2nd of August of this year. U.S. debt credit rating downgraded only second time in nation's history. On August 1st of 2023, Fitch Ratings, one of only three private credit rating firms, downgraded its U.S. credit rating system from AAA to AA+. They say what Republicans have been repeatedly warning our colleagues, spending and debt is unsustainable, interest costs are out of control, inflation and interest rate hikes have weakened our economy, we will be in recession by the end of the year, the fiscal outlook only gets worse, our debt to GDP has hurt U.S.'s ability to absorb a major financial shock in the future. And if we don't change course, the U.S. will not only incur another credit downgrade, we will undermine the dollar as the global reserve currency. End the quote there. I agree with that, by the way. This goes back to what I was mentioning about uh, the future of, of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. I do think it is in question. It's just not going to happen. The major shift that'd be catastrophic for the dollar right now. I think the news article I was reading before, I, I, I could be getting this wrong, but I think it misstated the Fitch rating system. I think it said that it went from double A to double A plus. It might have said triple A, but in case it did say double A, note that this wasn't me, you know, <laughs> that I was just reading what, what was on the screen verbatim uh, from the article. But it might have said triple A to double A plus, but it certainly is the, the way the Fitch rating system works. It definitely is uh, AAA and then AA plus. And now America is, of course, AA plus, which uh, even though AA plus sounds good, uh, that's not uh, not really good uh, uh, considering the context. Uh, now, uh, let's see, where do I want to go here? Another part of the article skipping down the U.S. government's credit rating and the fiscal state of the nation's. Of fiscal state of the nation. Credit ratings are based on a country's current and forecasted fiscal status, including things such as debt to GDP and overall economic health, to evaluate a country's ability to pay their debt. Debt held by the public grew from 39% of GDP in 2008 to over 100% today. Over the next 30 years, debt is projected to increase to 181% of GDP under current law, driven by increased mandatory slash entitlement spending, interest expenses, and health care costs. $11 trillion in spending has resulted in record inflation and interest rate hikes, which is causing a downward economic spiral. Fitch says we are headed for a recession, and it is totally self-inflicted. As House Budget Chairman Jody Arrington stated, quote, with annual deficits projected to double and interest rates expected to triple in just 10 years, our nation's fiscal health is rapidly deteriorating and our debt trajectory is completely unsustainable. This is a wake-up call to get our fiscal house in order before it is too late, end quote. Now, uh, there's a lot I can get into here uh, but I will, there's a hell of a lot. It's a very interesting article, but 
I will just deal with one other aspect of it, uh, titled 2023 Fitch Downgrade. Why this happened? Fitch described the key drivers of the rating downgrade. Quote, the rating downgrade of the United States reflects the expected fiscal deterioration over the next three years, a high and growing general government debt burden, and the erosion of governance relative to AA and AAA-related peers over the last two decades that has manifested in repeated debt limit standoffs and last-minute resolutions, end quote. Debt to GDP expected to rise. Fitch's report highlights that the U.S. government, quote, debt to GDP ratio is projected to rise over the forecast period, reaching 118.4% by 2025. The debt ratio is over two and a half times higher than the AAA meeting of 39.3% of, of GDP and AA median of 44.7% of GDP. Fitch's longer-term projections forecast additional debt-slash-GDP rises, increasing the vulnerability of the U.S. fiscal position to future economic shocks, end quote. Problems on the horizon. Fitch stated there is a, quote, marked increase in general government debt, for example, due to a failure to address medium-term public spending and root challenges, end quote. Those challenges facing the federal budget are significant. According to the report, quote, over the next decade, higher interest rates and the rising debt stock will increase the interest service burden with, while an aging population and rising health care costs will raise spending on the elderly absent fiscal policy reforms, end quote. Mandatory spending woes. The report also highlights a projected, quote, rise in mandatory spending on Medicare and Social Security by 1.5% of GDP, end quote, as well as the looming insolvency of, of the Medicare Hospital Insurance Trust Fund by 2035 and the Social Security Trust Fund by 2033. Recession on the horizon. Fitch also projects that the economy will enter a, quote, mild recession in the fourth quarter of 2023 and the beginning of 2024. That's all I'm reading from this article from the House Budget Committee. It is fascinating. People should check it out. Uh, once again, it's titled U.S. Debt Credit Rating Downgraded, only second time in nation's history. Uh, obviously, you know, it's it's not good, but you don't need me to tell you that. Um I think I, I, there's not really much I could say that I didn't read about already. I mean, this is basically an is-what-it-is situation, and it's a very bad situation. Uh, it certainly is something that does not bode well, I think, over the long run for the health of the U.S. dollar. Uh, it's something that doesn't bode well for people uh, who are struggling to make a living due to inflation. Uh, it's something that's going to certainly contribute to the cost of living crisis. The debt is unsustainable, but that's a common refrain by now. I'm not doing anything groundbreaking by reiterating it. Uh, I would say that over time, the dollar status is the world's reserve currency. If the U.S. is continually downgraded, certainly would have a, a shorter duration than it otherwise would. Uh, this uh, you know, reserve status, I think, uh, if it goes away sooner than later, it's because the U.S. takes on an extreme amount of debt, regardless of BRICS. I mean, BRICS is going to be doing its own thing. It's interested in a gold-backed uh, transnational currency, which is fascinating. So we'll see what happens. But the U.S. would hasten the decline of its dollar on the world stage by uh, continuing this insane debt level. And uh, 
it looks like you'll continue. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much political will to stop this. I mean, you have House Republicans saying you shouldn't do this, but uh, they have very limited power, needless to say, given the uh, partisan breakdown of, uh, of, uh, of Capitol Hill. So that's the situation there, a very depressing one. From Joseph Morgan. What role, if any, will BRICS play in bringing about the demise of the dollar as the world reserve currency? Is that demise inevitable, as I believe, or can the unchecked, unregulated, fractional banking farce go on in perpetuity? A very interesting question, uh, to say the least. And there is an article published at uh, Markets Insider. It was published on the 12th of July of this year, titled Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Author Robert Kiyosaki warns the dollar will die as BRICS nations eye gold backed alternative. Robert Kiyosaki said the dollar will meet its de- will meet its end as de-dollarization efforts ramp up among BRICS nations. Recently, the BRICS group of countries said they are working on trading on a trading currency backed by gold. That comes as several nations step up efforts to dethrone the dollar as the world reserve currency. This is quoting from Kiyosaki, uh, who wrote uh, on Twitter the following, BRICS nations announce gold-backed crypto. U.S. dollar will die. Trillions of U.S. dollars rush home. Inflation through the roof by gold, silver, Bitcoin to 120K next year, end quote. Reiterating, I give no financial advice for just reading what he said. I do not advise anyone on anything when it comes to their investments. Uh, Really, I don't. Uh, it's, it's, so getting to my point of view, uh, beyond that, I, I think that the, I've been talking about the demise of the dollar in various, uh, stages, but I I think that BRICS will certainly play a massive role in bringing about the end of the dollar's world reserve currency. I don't think it's going to happen. As I said, next week, next month, next year, not even necessarily in the next 10 years. But, uh, I, I think that. It is coming. Uh, and that's not to say the dollar is going to be the Zimbabwean dollar, but it's just not going to have the utility it does outside of the U.S. And obviously, with the debt level the U.S. is taking on, inflation will get worse and worse. Now, looking at uh, the fractional banking farce, as uh, as um, <laughs> Joseph puts it, always interesting calling somebody else Joseph. Um, I think this depends uh, on how BRICS handles its, its currency. If it's a gold-backed currency, I don't think that what you described as the fractional banking farce can go on in perpetuity. Uh, I, I really don't. I mean, the gold would be would be a, a big stop sign, a uh, roadblock even. But, of course, the gold-backed currency comes with its own issues. Uh, it's better, you know, it certainly is more sustainable, but it's not necessarily as versatile uh, either, depending on changing market conditions, and it goes on and on and on from there. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be getting into that uh, momentarily. So it's it's interesting. But uh, I think really uh, the fractional banking system, uh, the farce as Joseph describes it, it would be hard to go on in perpetuity with a gold-backed uh, BRICS transnational currency. But we'll see what happens. Uh, it will be interesting, put mildly. So many things will be interesting. I have to say I am reasonably proud of myself for <laughs> going on this long and only now taking a drink of diet green iced tea. Uh, but uh, it doesn't taste that bad. 
basically no taste at all, but it's better than stuff I really like with sugar and high fructose corn syrup and all that good stuff. I, I really, you know, uh, when it comes to food, I'm not the biggest uh, consumer of it, but I love sugary drinks. I always have, uh, always, always. And diet green iced tea is definitely not that. It has no calories and sweetened with artificial uh, sugar. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> uh, it is better for me than the, uh, than, the, uh, than the regular soda is. So that's that. But anyway, getting to another question from Joseph Morgan. Do you think that a U.S. national or even quasi-national digital currency is inevitable? I have a very hard time believing any truly global digital currency that replaces all others will ever uh, exist outside of world conquest by a nation. Very good question. And there is an article, an interesting one, published in uh, the New York Post that I will be getting to uh, right now as soon as the day I'm paid. Here we are. Published on January the 25th of last year, U.S. digital currency is inevitable, Bank of America says. The United States is likely just a few years away from implementing a national digital currency, according to analysts at Bank of America. The idea of digital coin issued by the U.S. government, known as a known as central bank digital currency, CBDCs, have gained prominence in recent years alongside the rise of leading crypto crypto tokens, such as Bitcoin, which isn't tied to any government institution. U.S.-backed digital coins, quote, are an inevitable evolution of today's electronic currencies, end quote. Bank of America crypto strategist Alkesh Shah and Andrew Moss wrote in a client note on Monday, according to Bloomberg, the first U.S. digital dollar could be issued between 2025 and 2030, the strategist said. The Federal Reserve issued the findings of a study evaluating the pros and cons of a U.S. digital currency. The central bank requested public comment through May 20th on the concept as it considers whether a digital coin, quote, could improve the safe and effective domestic payment system, end quote. Now we're done with the article. I am not at all a fan of the U.S. digital currency. I do not want to see it. There have been pushback to this in various states from Republicans as well there should be. Uh, it's a way for Uncle Sam, in my opinion, to trace every penny or e-penny you make and spend. And it's uh, a very effective way of Big Brother broadening his reach uh, while seeming to do something very convenient for everyone. I mean, who wants to go through the terrible inconvenience of going to your wallet and taking out a few dollars and handing it to the cashier when you could just use an app on your phone and scan it at the cash register and you have your Uncle Sam e-bucks that you spend. But uh, it's a very bad idea because it takes away an element of privacy from personal finance, which is important in too many ways to get into. It even pertains to personal responsibility, let alone, uh, you know, uh, other things. So it's, it's. Uh, I think that this is, is a terrible, terrible move. I don't think there will be a legit international digital currency that is uh, that spans the world and it somehow is not controlled or manipulated by a single country. Uh, that that I think is crazy. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think what will take place is that there's probably be a, a back to basics approach, such as what BRICS is doing with the uh, with its goal theoretical 
gold-backed uh, currency. And that, even then, even though it be transnational, sure as hell is going to be controlled by, uh, in, in my opinion, I think it's fair to say, uh, Russia, China, India. Basically, the, those would be the big three. Brazil, I don't think, would have that much say. Uh, maybe Russia, China, and India, they'd be the power players there. and They'd certainly be jockeying for as much power over their international currency as possible. Uh, so that's my perspective. A very good question from Joseph Morgan, and he has yet another one. How big of an economic bubble is the West in currently? I believe the push for world war, thus all the players in NATO refusing to yield an inch in Ukraine, is to get the war that can save the from the from impending economic Armageddon. What do you think of that hypothesis? Very interesting hypothesis. Uh, I'm going to bring up an article now published in Deutsche Well, uh, which is, <laughs> uh, it's about as neoliberal hack establishment uh, as it gets, pro-EU, the whole damn thing. But it's an interesting article. Uh, it was published on the 26th of August of this year. It was titled, BRICS, The West Reacts to Plans for Enlargement. The BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, want to add six new members to their group on January the 1st, 2024. The West is playing it cool. Perhaps the U.S. really doesn't see the BRICS plans as a serious threat, or perhaps downplaying the group's intention to bring in Iran, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Argentina is simply a political strategy. It's simply political strategy. At any rate, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has said that the BRICS bloc is not a geopolitical rival to the United States because their interests are too different. The White House is clearly trying not to rock the boat. No one has denounced the initiative as an open attack on American global supremacy. A State Department spokesman said that in order to maintain global peace and security, the U.S. quote will continue to work with our partners and allies in bilateral, regional, and multilateral fora. The U.S. dot dot dot. The U.S. reiterates its belief that countries may choose the partners and groupings with whom they will associate. End quote. <laughs> From my point of view, yeah, right. Should have been added to that. Um, getting away from 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 the, the the DW article, I, I think. I mean, there's no question that, that DC sees the, the emerging BRICS currency as a threat, but it is playing it cool, as the article says. And this pertains to the economic bubble that the West is in. It's traditionally had this position of economic superiority over the rest, rest of the world, with the exception of Japan and eventually Korea because and Singapore, uh, because it has been so developed uh, and the rest of the world basically was getting crumbs from the West table or seeing its resources used by Western corporations. Uh, to the benefit of not only corporations but westerners who would get cheap goods imported from places that do not have a suitable level of economic development to harness their own resources for their own people uh i i think that the bubble will burst uh and certainly what's happening with this bizarre push for world war that some people has you know the nato fanaticism the lunacy in the ukraine uh all of it is designed to distract from pressing economic problems. I don't. I wouldn't call it Armageddon, uh, but I think that certainly this is a wag the dog style situation. Uh, and I do think the U.S. The, the, the West is in an economic bubble, and the new BRICS alliance and the currency that's probably going to come from this, especially this gold back, which once again comes with certain benefits and drawbacks. I'm really going to get into that in a minute, but. Uh, 
all the same, the idea that Washington and London and Brussels do not see this as a problem, uh, along with, uh, excuse me, Canberra. I know I didn't pronounce that correctly. <laughs> uh, it's 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 really uh, it's really farcical. I mean, these people absolutely care about what's going on. Tokyo as well, and Seoul. Uh, it's it's really a it's really a situation that speaks to the rapid change taking place uh, on the economic stage across the world where there is this transference of power from the developed world to the developing world was always inevitable. But uh, as the global economy grows, there are pains. And part of that has to do with uh, the West's economic bubble uh, not being as durable as it once was and eventually popping. I don't know when that will be. But uh, I do think that is bound to happen at some point. I don't think anytime soon. I think the bubble is just going to become weaker and weaker and smaller and smaller uh, for some time. Uh, and it will be interesting to see the consequences of that. I think there'll be, for those of us who are on the West, rather negative. But in time, there will be positives, I think, as um, the heretofore undeveloped world asserts itself. And it might even result in infusion of cheaper goods into the West uh, over time. You never know. Uh, it's a possibility. But uh, an interesting one all the same. The last question is from Jack Walricka, uh, and it is your thoughts on whether the U.S. should return to the gold standard. Well, I did say there's going to be something brought up about the gold standard, uh, and here it is. This is an article from uh, Procon.org, which is a, a publication of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Very interesting pro-con argument. I'm not going to read anything near the whole things, but I will go over the, the, the arguments uh, from 30,000 feet. Pro-1, gold retains a value that has been recognized across the globe throughout history, and a gold standard self-regulates to match the supply of money to the need for it. Con-1, the availability and value of gold fluctuates and does not provide the price stability necessary for a healthy economy. Pro two, a gold standard would reduce the risk of economic crises and recessions while increasing income levels and decreasing unemployment rates. Con two, a gold standard would limit the ability of the Federal Reserve to help the economy out of recessions and depressions and to address unemployment. Pro three, a gold standard puts limits on government power by restricting the ability to print money at will and increase the national debt. Con three, Gold standards create periodic deflations and economic contractions that destabilize the economy. Pro 4. Returning to a gold standard would reduce the U.S. trade deficit. Con 4. A gold standard would increase the environmental and cultural harms created by gold mining. Pro 5. A gold standard would force the United States to reduce military and defense spending and could prevent unnecessary wars. Con 5. Returning to a gold standard could harm national security by restricting the country's ability to finance national defense. Cons, excuse me, pro six. Many politicians, businessmen, and organizations support the return to a gold standard. Con six. Many prominent economists oppose returning to a gold standard. And that is it for the pros and cons. I mean, there's a hell of a lot here. People should absolutely read it. 
It's an article titled, Should the United States Return to a Gold Standard? Published at Procon.org, which is a project of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Do check it out. It's published on the 12th of August, 2020. Uh, absolutely read it. Once again, titled, Should the United States Return to a Gold Standard? My thoughts are basically the pro and con argument. There are benefits and there are drawbacks. I don't really think there's anything that I can add to what I've already said. Uh, but uh, I am sympathetic towards uh, gold standard arguments. Uh, it, perhaps we could have a modified gold standard, uh, which the U.S. had up until the 1970s, but it was meaningfully gone before that, uh, just the last vestige until the Nixon administration. It was FDR who really axed the U.S. dollar from the gold standard, uh, and that caused massive inflation. Uh, so it, it's it's it, there are benefits, as, as I read, and drawbacks, as I read to the gold standard. I am more sympathetic towards it, but in a modified way, uh, although it couldn't just be an overnight transition to a gold-backed currency. It would have to be something incremental over the span of something like, I'd say, a decade. So good luck with that. But it's not a bad idea to go back to gold to some degree, to a large degree. I don't think in totality. But, uh, you know, there are <clears throat> solid arguments for and against this, as I've said a few times now. And people should check out that article, once again titled, Should the United States Return to a Gold Standard? Uh, very good question from Jack. And that sums it up. That That is not sums it that, that wraps it up for tonight. Uh, I really have enjoyed this. It's been fascinating uh, putting my <laughs> mind to work on these very, very interesting queries. You know, I talk a lot on Twitter about uh, current events and culture and this and that and the other thing. But uh, obviously, my specialization is in business, and that pertains to economics. So this sort of thing is what I really am qualified to uh, to to sink my claws into, if you will. And I'm glad to have done so today. I thank everyone for their questions. They were great, and I really enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to the next Q&A. There will be changes coming down the road to my show, major changes. You'll be hearing about them starting in October, uh, and there'll be more changes thereafter. This is definitely going to uh, to pick up steam, my uh, my, uh, my my program, and also the, the Twitter account, or X, whatever the hell, you know, whatever. It's so ridiculous to call it X, but, you know, not, I'm not even going to get into that. Uh, but anyway, I thank everyone for having tuned in, and I thank everyone for following me who does follow me. If you don't follow me, what the hell are you waiting for? Please follow me as soon as you can. Uh, I think you'll be better off for it. But, uh, you know, the show would not be worth doing without the followers. It would be impossible to get any kind of, you know, audience to speak of. Uh, it would not be worth posting any commentaries about for the followers. Everyone who fo I'm sorry, this voice is giving out. But any everyone who follows me, thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. Uh, it, it is immensely appreciated. Uh, it's because you follow the account that I'm able to do stuff like this, that I have any reason to do stuff like this, I should say. Uh, technically, I could still do stuff like this, but what would it amount to without people uh, checking it out? So thanks again, really. It is, I'll raise the entire picture to you. Thank you very much for following. It's great to finally be back or to be above where I was when the great post-J6 purge came about. That was definitely not a cool time, but mildly. And that is all, everyone. Please stay safe, be well. Thank you very much for having tuned in tonight. 
And I'll raise the pitcher again because it is a special night given that follower count. Cheers. Thank you.